probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to another episode of the Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me again today... Spencer Perry, Associate Editor at ComingSoon.net. And we're continuing to see some more crazy shit today on The Thing. <laughs> so uh, we're on minute 33, which uh, begins with Childs kind of like looking at the at the creature, like totally awestruck and you know, doesn't know what to do. And then ends a minute later with a shot from the outside of the camp as it's, it's dawn at outpost 31 after all this has happened. So yeah, here we get, uh, as you mentioned at the end of, of yesterday's episode with the, uh, where child just kind of comes into frame and shows up finally with the flamethrower that they've been waiting for. And then he runs over to look at it and is again, just like totally taken aback by what he sees, which is suddenly an entirely new thing effect here. And also like, he probably has the best reaction you could have to rounding a corner and and running into that. <laughs> I don't know what else you could do. <laughs> yeah, it's. I don't know if it's like a if it's something that you'd like run up to and scream, or if you'd run away, or yeah. I think his reaction is probably the accurate one, where he's just like dumbfounded, like his brain doesn't even know how to process what he's seeing right now. <laughs> but then also, also right after that is when you you get this. It's it's a, it's a line that just kind of summarizes McCready as a whole. You know, he's a no nonsense guy that can get the job done in any sort of circumstance. Because immediately he yells, "Get your ass over here!" Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is like this scene. I think you know, if you're not entirely sure, this scene is where it's like a hundred percent cemented that McCready is the main character and he's like the the leader. He's the one who's actually going to take charge and do something. Right. Because um, yeah, even before this, just the fact that you know. Um, Bennings runs up and tells Childs that Mac wants him to get the flamethrower. It's like, he's the fucking helicopter pilot. Why do I have to do what he says? <laughs> <laughs> like, it seems kind of funny, but, you know, cle- yeah. clearly he's the one who's, like, going to take charge and actually do something about what's going on here. So let's talk about this this creature. Because, yeah, the last time we saw it, it was the same kind of dog thing that, that we've been seeing, except it had the arms that were pulling itself up into the ceiling. And then when we cut back here, it's like something completely different. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's grown three times its size. <laughs> yeah. It, like at this point, like, I don't, I don't know whether it's like touching the ground and it's just grown to be like this human sized blob or whether it's like, this is what it, it's hanging from this. I think it's hanging from the ceiling like that. Cause then when you see it actually burned, it looks like it's hanging and that falls down. Right. But, yeah. but it's like fucking enormous. And yeah, you, that that one shot there, uh, you see all kinds of great little pieces of it too. Where I'm always focused on the the gross looking like eyeball that moves around and blinks. <laughs> Just, and then there's a, another eyeball kind of uh, underneath it to to the down and to the left from the one that opens up. Where it's not a you don't like see an iris or anything, but you can kind of see the the eyelids moving a little bit. It, just another eyeball hidden underneath there, and then all these teeth. Uh, on, yeah. on screen <laughs> yeah that was something i've never really noticed that before because again i'm always just sort of focused on that eyeball that's so 
that's what really kind of catches your eye. But yeah, in the in the bottom right, there's like this huge mouth that's just got these gigantic bloody teeth that are like chomping down. And I think you even see, yeah, there's a dog head too on the left that like go, lowers out of frame too. Like there's all right. kinds and, of shit going on here. And when that uh, the big mouth on the right opens up, you can even see a third eyeball behind that. Oh, really? I'm, I'm watching it. Yeah, you're right. Jeez. And they're all that one's moving too, it looks like. It's hard to tell. But yeah, I mean, th- this uh, this had to be one of the most like hands-on, like they had to have probably at least five or six guys puppeting this thing because there's just so many, so many little moving parts and things going on and stuff I never really even noticed. And it's for such a short shot too. It only lasts for like a, a second or two both times you see it. Yeah. And then we get uh, one of the, one of the coolest effects, even if it only lasts, I think it lasts for like less than a second, but when it, uh, it, the whole like blob opens up and that, that huge like tentacle flower thing shoots out and, <laughs> and attacks, uh, childs. That was one of the things that was one of the coolest things I learned kind of just, you know, watching special features and reading about the movie and stuff is the specifics of that. Cause I've never like, you know, watched the movie like frame by frame to, to check it out or anything like that. But that, that whole, that flower thing that comes out is actually made of its dog tongues. Yeah, yeah. Which is so cool. And it's just one of those, it's like a teeny tiny detail and it's literally on screen for like, I think, you know, probably 20 frames or something. <laughs> um, and, it, and it, you know, it's something that they had to like think up and then draft out and then craft and then shoot. And like, it's barely in the movie, but it's, it's such a cool effect that it is. It's this very alien looking thing, but I, I would have never really noticed that it's made or consciously noticed at least that it's made of dog stuff. Like, yeah, that's something that you're only going to see if you're pausing the movie and, and staring at it to, to look at it. Cause when you just see it play out on screen and it happens so quickly, you're like, Oh, it's just this weird flesh flower. But then when you pause it, you see, you see the tips of the tongues mm-hmm. ar- around the thing. And then uh, I, I guess sort of, a you know, I guess those are supposed to be teeth that are holding it up on the inside. Yeah, I mean, and they kind of look like dog teeth, I guess. At least yeah. the, the ones on the ends are like kind of like canine teeth. Yeah, they're pointy. Oh, so awesome, though. Yeah, and then, of course, it's a John Carpenter movie, so you have to get the perspective of the monster. So for right. for, <laughs> for just a second, we get, you know, the camera rushing in towards Childs before he, before he shoots it down, which is uh, is pretty awesome. Yeah, and then he finally, finally shoots the flamethrower, which... You know, this movie's got loads of uh, loads of scenes of guys hesitating to shoot monstrous things with flamethrowers. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, it's I like that when it's when it's burning and it falls down, you can see it's it's a clever kind of practical thing for the effect that you can see it's got like these tentacles that are holding it up to like different places in the room that are clearly yeah. just like bungee cords. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, they're painted to look like these tentacles. So it's it's you know, it works perfectly. It's totally believable that this is what. You know, the thing was just in in the process of pulling itself out of the out through the ceiling. And also, it seems like it shrunk between those yeah. the, those previous shots to now. <laughs> Most definitely, yeah. Like it looks it looks human sized or or bigger, probably much bigger in that that one shot. And yeah, then when they shoot it, it looks it looks again like it's about the size of a dog and just falls down from the ceiling. Oh, and it's worth noti- m- mentioning too. I I uh, I never noticed this before watching it. It's just another one of those things watching it super closely when that uh, when the the tongue flower thing starts to come out. You can totally see Rob Bottin standing behind it. Oh yeah. (laughs) 
like a hundred percent. It's just a dude standing behind this, but like, you know, nobody watching this, you know, unless you're looking for it is their eyes are of course <laughs> going to be on this like grotesque thing that's happening in front. You would never notice, but it's one yeah, of those you things. Can, you can see would... the top of his head pop up from right behind it. <laughs> yeah. Like now in a movie that would definitely get like airbrushed out. Like that would, I would never have right. made it, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's kind of a, I think it's kind of a charming, charming thing that it's left in. <laughs> So this is actually this scene here. I think is one of the kind of controversial bits actually in people that talk about uh, talk about this movie and try and debate on what happens and who gets assimilated when and stuff. In that, uh, some people believe that part of the thing escapes through the ceiling, and some people think that it does not. Um, what are, what are you what are your thoughts? Hmm. You know. I had never thought about it before, but thinking about it now, I, w- I would imagine part of it does escape because not only not only because of what we were just talking about in that it looked so big in the one shot and then when they torch it, uh, only part of it, it looks smaller. So may- maybe the reason it looks smaller is that only part of it fell off is that, you know, the, the, the beast was already halfway into the ceiling. But when it got torched, so it said, all right, I'll just rip off this half of me and keep going. Yeah. And I mean, to, to the monster like the thing, like that wouldn't really matter. Like it's, right. you know, if it has to lose part of its body because every part of it is, you know, itself. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I kind of agree with you. I think predominantly most people think that it does not escape, that they burn, you know, that when when you see it burning and falling down, that's what was reaching up to the ceiling. But I kind of agree. I think at least some part of it escaped. Um, and that would explain, too, how some of the people get assimilated later in the movie who right. you know, we don't really know. And granted, there's a lot of stuff at the beginning of the movie here where that we don't really see, like when they're flying to the Norwegian camp. There's like a lot of time that's unaccounted for with the dog. So, yeah. you know, you could probably argue, you could probably figure out a way to, to make it work that everybody who's infected later in the movie got infected before this point by the dog itself. But yeah, I tend to think that part of it escaped and that's, that's one of the things that's, uh, that's taking over people later on. Yeah, I, I agree. I didn't even, I didn't realize that was a, a point of contention for uh, thing fans, but uh, it, it shouldn't surprise me given uh, <laughs> how many other portions of this people argue about <laughs> that is true yeah this is that's it's one of the reasons why i thought this would be a good good movie to take this format and, and podcast about is because there are so many different like theories and ideas and discussion points about it too like there are lots of things to disagree about <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that i i always kind of assumed that it escaped and, and what they're burning is a different part of it too um until i kind of started reading that online that people a lot of people just think that no it like that it's dead at this point, and the only thing that's left are, are it, you know, whoever's already assimilated. You know, in particular, whoever that uh, the mysterious shadow is earlier in the movie that the the dog goes and visits in the middle of the night. Right. Yeah. Another one of those uh, things that people always argue about. But <laughs> so uh, it's worth noting too that the flamethrowers in this movie are totally real, and they are not uh, they are not handled by uh, stuntmen or professionals. Like that's actually Keith David shooting a real flamethrower <laughs> into that little <laughs> bitty room. Just another example of how there's a lot of things in this movie that would like never fly uh, if this was made now. Like super dangerous stuff that these actors got put through. And I think it, I think Keith David uh, said in, in some interview that he was like very aware that if he like dropped it or turned like you know, five degrees to either side that he would like burn the entire cast of this movie alive, <laughs> which is totally insane. Yeah. So at this point, um, 
I guess this this is something that uh, people would be arguing about. But Palmer at this point has not been assimilated, and he's the one he's the one that he's he's right in frame with Kurt Russell there at the end. Mm-hmm. So does he give? Or maybe he has been assimilated. Maybe he's the one that the dog got to the night before. So when he turns and gives McCready that look, that look carries weight in that is is that Palmer, the man, looking at McCready like, why did you make us do this? Or is that Palmer, the thing, saying, all right, I know who to keep my eye on? Yeah, I mean – Palmer and Norris, uh, Palmer, Norris and Blair, I guess, are, you know, the ones that we know towards the end of the movie are infected and assimilated. And um, but you really don't know when it happens, especially for Palmer, because, yeah, I think, you know, I tend to think that uh, it's either Palmer or Norris. That's that's the shadow that you see earlier. Um, Mm -hmm. I I tend to think it's Norris because I feel like he the way he gets infected seems like he's getting taken over slowly, like how he keeps having like the kind of chest pains and stuff that leads into when he, when he, you know, <laughs> the whole chest bursting thing and all that. But, right. But Palmer, like we, you really don't have any idea. So it's, you know, he could have been the shadow or he could have been at some other point or, or just sometime off screen after this point, like you, you really don't know, but yeah, that's, you know, knowing what happens to him later, this is a pretty interesting scene with, with him kind of looking back at McCready like that. You're right. I like that when they, um, they're, they're putting out the fire and, you know, it's all kind of smoky and, the music comes back in for the first time in a while that we see windows is one of the guys who's, who's like right there in the front, you know, shooting the fire extinguishers is still wearing his sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like there is one, the only source of light in this whole scene is one flashlight and it's like full of like smoke and fire extinguisher dust or whatever. And he's still sitting there with his sunglasses. <laughs> like, dude, you're not like, you can't see anything right now. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. And not only that, but, it's it's what three in the morning in Antarctica. It's yeah. dark. <laughs> Why did you bring them with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that's a pretty good uh, pretty good point overall. Yeah, of like I, I have been kind of thinking about as watching as I'm watching this, like you know some of the stuff these guys chose to bring along with them to Antarctica, like Nalls and his roller skates, and yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, the sunglasses, uh, you know. Maybe like actual, you know, goggles or whatever, like what some of the guys wear when they go outside. That would make sense. But these just the sunglasses uh, that for a guy who (laughs) basically never goes outside in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Um, But uh, so I I did have a few notes from from some differences in the the TV version. Um, (laughs) So, of course, the first one is that McCready says, get your butt over here, which is Mm -hmm. that, that one's a given. But then there's some other kind of real odd stuff. There's a lot of cases from, from the little bits I've started to watch of the TV version where they just add back in either shots or lines that are not in the movie, I guess just to make up for some of the time that they lose because they cut so much of the creature and the gore out. Um, but yeah, there's one here that's kind of weird. Um, when Childs is, is right at the end of him shooting the flamethrower, like in the real movie, he just stops and then they all rush in and put the fire out. Right. But in the TV version, you hear Blair in the background saying, uh, stop, I want to see what the hell that is. And then he stops. <laughs> like, he's the one that, like, makes them do it, which is odd. Uh, like, I don't even know where that line came from. I don't think it's in the script or anything either. 
that is strange because it, it it flows so seamlessly in the actual movie of okay he burned it up and then he steps away so everyone mm-hmm. can walk in and put it out <laughs> yeah it's like they it's almost like they have like a manual like a safety manual and they've totally planned for this <laughs> yeah <laughs> like all right so anytime you see some like kind of giant blo- like bloody blob creature this is how we handle it and like they're all just like following the procedures <laughs> And I, I, also in the TV version, there's a funny bit to me where as they're putting it out and they're kind of panning through everybody looking at it, they just cut to the scene of Blair. Although I tend to think it's not Blair. It's just Wilford Brimley hanging out because he's just kind of <laughs> standing there looking around. It doesn't look like he's acting. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's it's the weirdest thing. Just another one. It's like an extra shot. It's probably like before they started filming or something, before they uh, before John Carpenter called action. But they, they really needed some filler in the TV version, like to make it match the commercial break or something. <laughs> it's just super weird. There are a lot of little bits like that. Yeah, so so here we leave off. They're just, you know, kind of looking on in stunned silence at, at the uh, the burned husk of the thing, which to me, this is another point where it, it kind of deviates from, you know, where um, I've, if this was done in, you know, the last couple of years as a as a modern horror movie, you would not get this like quiet moment of them all just kind of looking in total deadpan shock at what it is like. You'd be getting like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. Like, you know, there'd be right, some kind yeah. of stupid one liner to fill the gap. But yeah, the way they do that a lot in this movie where they kind of after something totally insane happens, you get like this kind of it's like a cool down moment, but it's also like gives a chance for the characters to kind of breathe and let their personality kind of actually act in that moment instead of just have like some over the top reaction where where I think a modern movie would probably go with it. And also the Morricone score in that part, uh, that shot of the whole cast and right after they've seen that the music is, is really good in that sense because it's, it's, it kind of invokes just the very idea of what the hell was that it's 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 sort of it's a mysterious sounding music that he has playing through there and and it's it's not something that's keeping you on the edge of your seat it's something that's probably like calming you back a little just to say like look you don't get it and neither do they yeah and it it might even it's real similar to the music that plays when they're um when they're discovering like the blood trail and the the the, um, right. the slit wrist body at the Norwegian camp, it might even be the same music cue, which, you know, that scene is very kind of old school horror haunted house kind of creepy mystery vibe. And that, that definitely kind of carries over to this scene too. Like you say, it just, it adds to kind of the like unknowability of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, this is, it's uh, one of the many reasons why I love this movie is because it is, it's such a kind of seamless combination of like horror, sci-fi and mystery in that, you know, for a huge chunk of this movie, you really don't know what's happening or really even what the plot of the movie is going to be like. We're getting real close to the point where you finally kind of understand what's actually going on and what what the what the plot of the movie is actually about. Because up until this point, you're just like there's like a UFO crash. There's there's these crazy guys shooting at a dog. And then there's this <laughs> and then there's, there's a base, an abandoned base where these guys like you know, from their perspective, they might think they had just gone crazy and, you know, somebody had attacked everyone at the base. But so you really don't know what's going on until right about now is where you start to kind of figure out what's happening. Yeah. 
So it's it's pretty unique in that sense too. It's one of the one of the reasons it kind of stands out among the among the pack of horror movies from this era for sure. And also, Wilfred Brimley is about to explain everything. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah that that is a trope that we do not escape in the thing. <laughs> it's he's he's got his Bond villain moment coming up here. In a yeah. <laughs> so. I think that kind of covers all the uh, all the notes that I had for minute thirty three. Any, anything else you wanted to mention? No, I, I I think we've covered all the bases here. Cool. So uh, that'll wrap up minute thirty three of the thing. One thing you can do is to always uh, look us up in iTunes. If if for some reason you're listening to the thirty third episode of this podcast and you haven't subscribed in iTunes, uh, do that so you never miss an episode. But if you have been listening up to this point and you like the show, if you can rate or review us in iTunes, that really helps out a lot as far as uh, visibility and getting the podcast out to, to more fans of the movie and things like that. So if you could do that, we'd be very grateful. So make sure to do that. But most importantly, don't forget to come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minutes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out. <laughs>